Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to Ponder, August 21st, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. The book of Jude is a little epistle written by an author with an interesting perspective. Jude introduces his short book by utilizing a brief autobiographical section which declares that he is the, quote, brother of James. This James is almost certainly the half-brother of Jesus Christ, which means that Jude would also belong to Jesus' earthly family. As we dive into this book, we are going to find the theme of false teachers is the main thrust of the text, but it is important to remember at the outset that all false teaching denies the person and work of Christ in some respect. What is most interesting to me is that two of the people who would know Jesus best, his two brothers who presumably grew up around Christ even before his earthly ministry commenced, write books to defend his identity and proclaim salvation in him alone. Think about the gravity of that for a moment. It's easy to trick people out there. When you are only around a person for a short amount of time, projecting some made-up or exaggerated image is not all that difficult. However, when you live around a person, your true colors are nearly impossible to camouflage. I suppose the point I am making is that Jude's undertaking to write a book about the need to defend the faith, which is grounded in his brother's divinity, is an amazing statement about the truthfulness of Christ's claims. If his own family believed him, shouldn't we? Now, some may be tempted at this point to claim that they were just predisposed to this belief. Who wouldn't want their brother or son or uncle to be famous? While this might sound convincing, Mark's little tidbit in our text for the day shows that Christ's own family changed their judgment at some point about his ministry. In context, Mark 3.21 describes the reaction of Jesus' family after Christ has begun his ministry. Mark describes the fanfare that accompanied Christ as he journeyed through cities, and he also tells us that Jesus' family thought he was, quote, mad. Essentially, Jesus' family presumed that he had lost his mind, and this contingent almost assuredly included Jude. The point of today's devotion, then, is quite simple. At some point between Mark 3 and the writing of his epistle, Jude came to the conviction that his brother was the Savior of the world. We are not sure when this happened. Perhaps it was at the sight of some miracle. Maybe it took place after a private conversation with Christ, or maybe it was after Jesus died and rose again. Regardless, the truth remains that Jude crossed from death to life, and he did so with so much inside information and observation, more than anyone could ever hope to enjoy. If this man who knew Christ and saw him so clearly and closely for all these years believed in Jesus, shouldn't that mean something to us? Point to Ponder, August 22nd, 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. We betray a good bit about the message that we are trying to communicate with our word choices. Sometimes a generic, less emotional word will suffice, but other moments demand a more pressing, urgent term. As an example, my children are guilty of often utilizing the term starving. If we haven't eaten dinner by 6 p.m., the parents are generally told that the littles are, quote, starving. We know that this is patently ridiculous, and the very fact that such an emotive term is used can often draw the ire of either Ashley or myself. Nevertheless, there are times in which the term starving is appropriate, and in fact, part of the reason why we don't love that word being used in such a flippant and unthreatening context is because the term loses its significance when it is employed in the wrong way. I say all of that to say that our study of the original language can often turn up a certain severity and meaning within a text as we come across words that have a certain gravity to them. 
In our text from Sunday, Jude implores the saints to, quote, contend for the faith. The word translated contend literally is transliterated as agonize. The point is that Jude is telling his readers that contending for the truth of the faith against false teaching will take great effort, even to the point of painful strain. Believers must be aware that the fight for faith is a battle. It's never over. To be frank, I worry that some in our convention of Baptist churches have fallen victim to the idea that the fight for truth was somehow won in the 90s. Those of you who know anything about Southern Baptist history know that a great battle was waged on the topic of biblical inerrancy, and this war was won for the moment by those who affirm God's word is without error and authoritative. While this was a marvelous victory, it did not and does not constitute the end of the struggle. Instead, we see in this day a fresh attack on the authority and reliability of the Bible, and many of those assaults have come from within. It's easy to look at the lay of the land and become faint when we consider the never-ending fight of contending for the truth in this fallen world. This struggle was predicted by Jude, and it was foreshadowed by the word contend in our passage from Sunday. The truth is that Jude is hardly the only writer to use such loaded language. In fact, the Bible is replete with examples and terminology that equate our walk with Christ with war. There are many terms that are meant to draw a parallel between a physical battle and our spiritual skirmish with Satan and those under his tyranny. Today's text serves as one example as Paul exhorts Timothy to, quote, wage the good warfare. Paul knew that Timothy's ministry was going to be characterized by conflict with evil. He knew that it would challenge him and he wanted to admonish his protege to be faithful in the fight. In the same way, Jude exhorts us to continue to contend in our world. We must contend for truth by proclaiming sound doctrine to a world that largely doesn't want to hear it. We must contend for truth by correcting those within our ranks who are espousing error and taking a stand on biblical realities, even if it means conflict. We must contend for truth even when we don't feel like it and when it costs us in the moment. The Christian life is a life built upon truth. Our confession of who Christ is and what he has done and what he expects of us are all contingent on his revelation to us, and this is why the truth is always under attack. May we expect and prepare for the inevitable struggle for truth, and may we contend for what is right, even to the point of agony. Point to Ponder, August 23rd, Hebrews 1, 1-2 There is a certain finality to Jude's words as he describes the nature of the faith that believers are to contend to protect. This faith was, quote, once and for all entrusted to God's people. The language is incredibly exclusive, and it communicates something that is quite important for us as we wade into the religious waters of our pluralistic society. Jude is telling us that there is nothing more coming from God as it relates to our faith. There is no new revelation that will be given, no new development until the Lord Jesus returns to rule and reign, at which time our contending for the faith will stop upon his triumphant and established kingdom. The gospel of Christ and Christian faith is a complete revelation. Now, I realize that many of you read the above paragraph and agree, but this doesn't mean that we live in a world where most others agree. It seems that many are waiting for additional information. We have those who love to speculate about end-time prophecies, for instance. Whereas Jesus clearly told us that no one know the hour of his return, Matthew 24, 36, some people ignore his declaration and speculate that God has given them more information. Others struggle with the category of sin. Many in our more liberal wings of the church have decided that Paul in particular was a product of his patriarchal pre-enlightenment time and therefore we must reinterpret and even disregard aspects of what he wrote underneath the inspiration of the Spirit in deference to more modern and inclusive ideologies. In both cases and countless others, the problem is grounded in a lack of trust in God's finished revelation and a propensity to want to add and or take away from what God delivered to us in his inspired word. 
And it seems to me that in order to contend for the faith, we must have the courage to boldly proclaim what God has proclaimed and refuse to take dogmatic stands where God has not clearly spoken. When I graduated seminary and commenced my journey as a full-time pastor, I do believe I had some frame of reference for those who would wish and even demand that I not proclaim the entire counsel of God's Word. I knew, for instance, that some would not like hearing the Bible's teaching on homosexuality or abortion or the like. I realized that there would always be some tension, even within the church, on these issues. I had heard stories from my grandfather and others about being fired from churches or persecuted for their stand against racism in previous generations, and I realized that human nature would always find some kind of issue to contest with the Scriptures. What I don't think I realized as clearly was that there would also be pressure from others to say more than what the Bible says. I found this to be a very prescient and constant battle. Many want us at Smyrna to make rules about things like what you should wear to church, whether you should wear a mask or not, what genre of music is acceptable, and the like. While we certainly believe that every believer must make a decision on these topics and countless others, and while we are happy to apply biblical reasoning to the issues at hand, the simple truth is that there is liberty for believers to have a difference of opinion. While some opinions might be less wise than others, there is a gap between sin and choices of personal conviction and or preference. The point is that God has given us a sufficient revelation to lead us to Him. Christ is revealed in His Word as the foundation of our faith. In the Bible, we read how we offer salvation and how he expects us as disciples to answer it. As the author of Hebrews says, in Jesus, God has, quote, spoken, past tense, and this means that no new revelation is coming. What God has said, we must contend for vehemently, and what he has left to our conviction, predicated upon biblical reasoning, we must allow for biblical and liberty of conscience. In these ways, we discern what we must contend to proclaim and what we must contend to leave to a person personal conviction. Point to ponder, August 24th, Acts 20, verse 29. Jude does a marvelous job of setting the stage for the main subject of the book within the first few verses. In verse 3, we hear his charge to contend for the faith, and in verse 4, he identifies who believers are to be contending against. The group that Jude identifies might be slightly different than what the typical reader would expect, and this means that we need to lean in and really understand the threat that God illuminates for us if we are going to have any hope of success in our struggle to maintain the truth of the faith. My assumption is that most of us have a category for false teaching. We understand, for instance, that a religion like Islam is aberrant. I hope that all the saints at Smyrna could look at someone like Muhammad and immediately recognize a false teacher. These people are more obvious, but according to Jude, they don't constitute the only danger. In fact, there is a greater threat that the Bible speaks to often, and that is the danger of wolves among the sheep. The ultimate danger for any congregation is not an attack on truth from the outside. It is an assault on truth from those who are within our ranks. We see this warning quite clearly in our text for today as Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders regarding what is sure to take place after he departs their company and therefore their congregation. Notice the wording here as Paul predicts that fierce wolves will rise up, quote, from amongst you. The language is inescapable. Paul knows that his departure will create a vacuum that false converts who are inside of the fellowship will try to exploit. His warning is appropriate for all of us to take to heart as he reminds them and us that we must not assume anything about people who would stand to teach the word of God. Instead, like the Bereans in Acts 17.11, we must be faithful and diligent to search the scriptures to confirm that whatever is being taught is true. Church family, there is real pertinent application here for us today. 
Specifically, we must ensure that the Bible remains the standard of truth and that we vet and hold accountable absolutely every person who attempts to proclaim God's Word. Obviously, many are intent on proclaiming truth, but that doesn't mean that there are not others who are hell-bent, pun intended, on leading our church towards falsehood. As we contend for the faith, we must contend to know and hold to the word of the truth. We must do so with our eyes wide open. This is one of the reasons why we have a membership and teacher development process at Smyrna. We are aware that many represent themselves to be disciples when they are nothing but a fraud, and it is imperative that we do all we can to identify and weed them out, prior to their gaining influence in our precious flock. Point to Ponder, August 25th, 2 Peter 2, and verse 3. It strikes me that one ditch we could possibly fall into as we discuss the topic of false teachers is the ditch of assumption. It's one thing to know that false teachers exist. It is an entirely new thing to know what marks distinguish them from everyone else. A lookout is only as good as their understanding of what they are looking out for. If we are not clear on the identifying marks of false teachers, we will be poor guardians of truth and the church. Thankfully, texts like 2 Peter 2 are exceedingly helpful for us as we seek to understand and identify those who are fraudulent in our midst. Over the next three days, we will see three characteristics of false teachers that help us distinguish them from true disciples. We will note that some of their identifying marks are based on the content of their message itself, while others are more closely aligned with their lifestyle, which betrays an unconverted heart. Today's identifying mark is greed. False teachers are known for their greed. This can manifest itself in many ways. Some false teachers focus on money all the time. Every week's sermon is about giving money to make money or the need for believers to sow seeds of faith. Their lifestyle is marked by an insatiable desire for money and more money and demonstrates a lavishness that is unbecoming of true believers. Their personal relationships are characterized by the desire to gain some kind of monetary advantage or benefit from the other party. Be on guard for such people. The Lord did not come with material wealth as the sum of his mission. While God has certainly promised to provide for our needs and so often gives us our wants as well, these blessings are not the pinnacle nor the purpose of our faith. The Bible speaks of money, but it rarely speaks of it without a warning, and it never is the ultimate goal of any text of Scripture. Instead, we are constantly reminded that money and how we use what we have is an indication of our hearts, and that the greater need and good is not material wealth, but spiritual riches which are grounded in our eternal union with Christ. Does this mean that a pastor should never speak on money? Hardly. The Bible does speak on the topic, but it does mean that a pastor or teacher or Christian should not be so wrapped up in money to the neglect of weightier matters, and that his lifestyle should demonstrate joy in the material things God has granted, without idolatry that manifests as men become beholden and fixated with items they possess and the clout that such economic standing can bring. If the ultimate goal of a person's life is accruing so much mammon and toys as possible, you can rest assured that he or she is yet to see the glory and worth of Christ, and therefore should not be trusted to preach his word amongst his redeemed. Point to Ponder, August 26th, 2 Peter 2 and verse 10. Another hallmark symptom of an unconverted heart is a disdain for authority. The Christian life is to be lived underneath the lordship of Christ. This means that the very act of believing upon Christ is one of submission to ultimate authority. The heart that is truly converted in submission to Jesus will be the one that is routinely in submission to what Christ says in his word and those whom Christ has placed in authority in his church. To state the inverse, those who refuse to adhere to authority and choose to make their own paths without their own theological founding and without concern for the truth of the word and discernment of the saints are not to be trusted. 
It amazes me how often disdain for leadership and false teaching coincide. The desire to be unhindered by any external source is a sure sign that a heart has not been humbled and conquered by God's glory and might. This means that we should be looking for people to lead who do not mind being led and who demonstrate a humility that shows Christ alone is their ultimate authority. What does this look like in practice? Here are a few general traits to look for in identifying such false teachers. First, someone who is above correction. If a person is never wrong and will not even entertain the prospect of possibly being wrong, then he or she is not the kind of person we should be tapping to teach. Second, a person who is unconcerned with the wisdom of others. Show me someone who doesn't care what otherwise saints say or who is totally disinterested in the opinion of others as they teach and lead, and I will show you someone who demonstrates no fruit that would lead me to place them in a position of leadership. Third, a history of leaving fellowships due to the faults of others. The biggest red flag in church membership processes is perhaps the indication that a person who is coming forward for membership can't get along with others because of their faults. The idea that the other party is always and totally to blame denies the biblical teaching of our sinful propensity, and it demonstrates an inability and or unwillingness to admit the fact that we are far from perfect beings. If a person cannot walk with humility towards others and acknowledge their own sins and shortcomings, they have no business teaching a word that is constantly harping on the fact that there is one who is perfect, and every other person desperately needs his grace and instruction. What we find at Smyrna is that there are two kinds of people who want to teach. Your teachers, be they Sunday school, small group, kids teachers, etc., that are placed before you demonstrate a deep love of the church and a willingness to be both lifelong learners and humble servants. However, there is a subset of others who consistently show a desire to be in charge or not to be involved at all. They are not interested in the input of others. They simply want a platform for their own recognition and benefit. These men and women are to be avoided, even if they have crept into our midst. Point to Ponder, August 27th, 2 Peter chapter 2, and verse 14. The Bible makes a constant connection between a person's supposed faith and their lifestyle. While many in evangelical circles today have attempted to sever the connection, the simple truth is that you know a tree by its fruit, and you know a Christian by his or her faithful life or lack thereof. It amazes me how often the church tries to distinguish between a person's lifestyle and their message. There is this odd belief that because we are saved by grace alone, that our lives matter little. Therefore, anyone is qualified to lead others in teaching, even if their life is a wreck. This idea is not biblical. In fact, the Bible emphasizes a person's character as the foremost qualification for those we entrust with the important task of teaching. Today's text reminds us that the distinction between good teachers and false teachers is illuminated by their lifestyle. The language here is interesting in that a specific sin is mentioned, adultery, which is probably a term that encompasses all sexual perversions, and then a more general statement follows. Some have tried to draw too hard of a distinction here, saying that adultery ultimately is really just a restatement of generic sin, but I think this is a bridge too far. Instead, it seems as if Peter is telling us that false teachers will be known by an insatiable desire to sin, and that sin will often be sexual in nature. You will notice that many of the failings of false prophets are in fact sexual. How many television evangelists or prominent evangelical figures have been exposed as sexually perverse? Sexual sin is a major problem in the Christian world. That is not entirely because there are many false teachers. Everyone struggles with sin in some respect, after all. But the fact that many of these teachers are so prominent and so proudly guilty of sin is not to be discounted. It seems that Peter's larger goal here is to show the nature of the sin of false teachers. 
These are not men and women who are genuinely believers and unfortunately fall into sin. These men and women are not falling into transgression. They actively and insatiably desire it. The point is that there is no repentant heart and no real desire to get out of what ails them. They are simply following their sinful fleshly desires with no spiritual fight whatsoever. Dear church family, there is a difference between a sinner who is saved by grace and at war with sin, even if they struggle at times, and a person who just jumps headlong into transgression. There is a marked difference between the one who echoes Paul's words saying, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't do, I do, and a person who simply feeds the flesh every desire they entertain and get in their depraved soul. On the one hand, we are people of grace who understand our own propensity to wonder, and on the other hand, we realize that true children of God despise sin and despair of their falling into its trap. This means that those who continue on with little to no shame or fight are to be labeled as false teachers and avoid it. After all, you cannot preach the gospel of truth that Christ was killed because of sin and cherish sin at the same time.